Hello and welcome back to the CB podcast, a new-ish Doctor Who podcast exploring different fragments of the Doctor Who universe. I'm Robert. And I'm Liam. Hello, Liam. Hi there. <laughs> Hi. So, should we tell them what we've been listening to this week? Well, they obviously know. Oh, <laughs> what, we, what we've been reading, rather. Well, unless we give the podcast a, a really obscure title. and uh, But yes, um, we've been... Well, you've been listening and I've been reading to Scratchman. The novelisation of a film. Initially, it was a script that was written by um, Tom Baker and Ian Martyr, who played Harry Sullivan. And the idea was that they were going to do a Doctor Who movie, but for one reason or another, the movie didn't get made. Uh, But the script's been floating around. Um, uh, Apparently, you can read the original script at the, I think, uh, the BFI archive, but finally, Tom Baker's got round to novelising the story. Yeah, and he's added a few little bits, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, well, actually, because it's advertised that this is um, Tom Baker's first ever Doctor Who novel, and of mm-hmm. course that's true, and it's Tom Baker's name who's um, selling it, but it was actually co-written. It was Tom Baker and um, James Goss. Yeah, I wonder what the extent of his writing was, Tom Baker. We can go into that uh, later because I, th- I think, given that we've experienced the story through different mediums, you, you've been listening to the um, to the reading that Tom Baker's given, and and I've actually written the book, not written it, read it. Sorry, <laughs> I'm the secret author. No, sorry, uh, I've actually um, read it. I think we've probably. Uh, I think our experiences of enjoying the story. Uh, would be quite different and I think we we probably would pick up on different things yeah I love Tom Baker's performance in the story uh, on the audiobook mm-hmm. it's great that well he speaks in the first person is that the perspective of the, of the book yeah 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 that's right the, the book's presented completely in the first person yeah it's great because he just adds a few extra little bits here and there and a few laughs like the doctor that's me and um Chapter 14, you love this one. He says that a few times about a few of the chapters. <laughs> oh, Gives that's... a little, little bit of commentary on, on uh, the book. <laughs> oh, that's quite good. Because I remember when, um, when it, just before the book was released, there was a few um, advertising things, and th- there was a clip on YouTube where Tom Baker was reading it. Um, yeah. And from what you're saying, the way that he read it in the clip, because he, he, he seemed to be really relishing it and going, oh, you're going to enjoy this. Because I listen to a lot of audiobooks on Audible, mm-hmm. and they're just read by, I guess, professional book readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they speak so formal and clearly, and you have to, you have to get through. In some cases, it could be twenty or thirty hours. You have to get through, and all you're doing is using your imagination to keep you awake. <laughs> but um, it was a really good listen with Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing with when reading the book, um, you can tell that. The uh, he's had great fun writing it, and you get a real flavour of his doctor. Just read when I was reading the book, it did feel like um, this was the fourth doctor telling the story. Um, and I think you come to realise because even though Tom Baker himself has has said this often, but when when you're reading his prose style, and he's really got to grips with. The character he played all those years ago, you know, he said that basically Tom Baker and the Fourth Doctor were one and the same. 
And I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of truth in that. You can see it when you're watching uh, the series, but given that he stopped playing the Doctor um, in 1981, although he's recently been playing the Doctor in the Big Big Finish Audio Adventures, but he really seems to have um, picked it up very well. And you go, I don't think it would have been that much of a stretch. I think you probably are one and the same person. It's been an absolute delight. This did feel like... Because he's through the pro style and the way that the Doctor speaks and is telling the story, it does feel like that it was this this hitherto missing story from from season twelve or the beginning of season thirteen. It really does feel like that era, and I love um, how the characters have been written. Mm-hmm. It really feels like Sarah and Harry. Yes, and uh, but not the dialogue in particular. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But I don't think it's it's not only that. I feel that this is something that's been quite personal for Tom Baker because you know, professionally speaking, he's always said that this was the happiest time of his life, and he absolutely loved playing the Doctor, and it's it's something that's never left him, and uh, he he holds that very dear to him. And he seems really sincere when he says it, as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think as his time's gone on, I think I think probably it rings a. A lot more truth, and it's 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 quite nice in some respects, but I think quite poignant. But when reading it, it didn't it didn't just feel like this was uh, Tom Baker um, having the opportunity to let his imagination run wild and, and telling an interesting uh, Doctor Who story, but it felt like it was a love letter back to that period and a friend's past. It wasn't just the fact that he's nailed um, the characters of Sarah Jane Smith and Harry Sullivan. It also felt like it was a, a, a something much more personal, and this was something in remembrance of Elizabeth Sladen and Ian yeah. Martyr, who played those characters. It, fe- it felt like um, not only was he writing fictional characters, but also sort of touching upon the people who they were in real life. Do you think um, the actors' personalities came across in the characters? I think so. I mean, especially obviously with uh, more so the Doctor because the story's through his eyes. It's it's and it's the actor who played that in, in um, that version of the Doctor telling the story. Mm. But yeah, it it didn't feel false at any point. It didn't feel jarring when reading it. It went, yeah, this this is this is Sarah. This is how would how would she, how she would react or um, deal with this situation. And the same with with Harry. There's a bit in the story which did make me chuckle, which was when um, everyone's everyone's held up in the church. I know I'm, I'm leaping ahead here. Maybe we can um, sort of describe the story in a bit. But there's a bit we'll, where the... we'll jump back and forward. Um, and also, are we going into spoiler territory now? E- yes, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if this is a story that you for, for the listeners um, that you wish to read or listen to recommend doing that then come back to the podcast because we're just going to be talking about it as if you 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 know the story we're doing a full review no holds barred so there's a bit where all the villagers uh, because they're being um attacked by all the scarecrows mm-hmm. um they're all in the the church and the doctor has sent uh, harry and sarah to, to grab a few things sarah to the tardis and harry needs to pick up some provisions from a, a corner shop <laughs> And it, that scene where he he's in constant danger, but just through complete completely oblivious, yeah, completely oblivious, at happenstance, <laughs> he manages to get out of the situation just as something terrible is going to happen, and um, through just being clumsy, 
that was really good because th- there was that sense of peril and danger and it was really gripping but the way that this situation kept on resol- re- resolving itself was quite funny um, and that felt true to sort of Harry's character particularly in stories like Revenge of the Cybermen in particular mm. and then you've got Sarah who's uh, who's you know terribly brave and just manages to deal with the situation head on you know when the TARDIS is under attack and how she's trying to escape so th- those um, those moments aid the story dramatically but the way that the characters uh, get out of the situation feels very true to the characters Harry is this sort of this bumbling gentleman type character who manages to get out of a bad situation through sheer luck if anything and then Sarah manages to get out of the situation because um, because she manages to deal with the situation head on. Do you think this would have made a good film? Oh yeah, I th- I, yeah, I think this would have made a great movie. When I, because the 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 story split into two parts. You got part one, which is set in the village, and part two, set in hell, effectively. Yeah. Um, I think the first half would have made a really good movie, particularly. Because when I was reading it, yes, I was enjoying it as a novel and just relishing the story, but knowing its history and that the idea that this was initially supposed to be a movie. Yeah. Obviously, they haven't just carbon copied the, the script. They've, they've tailored, tailored it to, to fit a story and update it. But the first half in particular, it did feel like this could have been a very good 1970s Hammer Horror movie. You know, it, it, it's set in a village. People are under attack from these monsters. And there, there were some. There are some moments which are genuinely creepy. When they're in the barn. Yes. Yeah. When yeah. they're in the barn and mm-hmm. um, they're having to hide from the scarecrows, but they've encountered um, the farmer. Yes. And there's a little bit of a hint that maybe he was going to transform anyway. I got. I got a bit of a hint that. Oh, the fact that he's feeling a bit stiff and his bone feels a bit funny. Is he? Is he in this form of transformation? But later on, when he's dragged into the bomb by the other scarecrows, and the way that they they, they force this transformation on him, um, and the way that's described and what happens, I mean, that's really horrific. I think he he was in a state of transformation anyway, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, because um, it's it's explained that there's there's this sort physical of physical contact as well. Yeah, I mean, because you listened to the audio version of it. Um, was there? What was the the sound effects like? There wasn't much of it. Occasionally, they would put sound effects in. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of incidental music here and there. But there wasn't a great deal of it. But um, it was all there in the performance. So I'd say maybe 5% of it could have been like, added effects. But the scene in the barn was was pretty intense. Mm. When, they're up, when they're up in the rafters, they're just above, aren't they? When he's being transformed and they make eye contact... So I was just curious to see how they um, how they put across on the audio version. I mean, reading it was um, well, yeah, you described it, it was quite intense. And imagine if you were seeing that in in a horror movie, that would be yeah. generally horrific. And this sort of period of Doctor, I mean, it been it's been done it been done before and it's been done since. But this this early period of when Tom Baker was the Doctor with season twelve, thirteen, and uh, fourteen in particular. There was a lot of body horror, you know, with with uh, humans transforming in one form or another, and that you know, quite a, a horrific idea. And this fits, you know, that slots into this period of the show quite well. But the um, 
but one the idea is scary but but the way that it was written was uh was generally horrific yeah the scarecrows were pretty um creepy the doctor obviously mentioned some of his suspicions like um like a nanovirus or um the dna has been altered mm-hmm. but then when we get into book 2 it's all very metaphysical and that kind of explains the nature of the scarecrows how it was very metaphysical it wasn't um there wasn't a rational explanation for it no yeah but i mean with the yes you're right um but so that when the story did take that sort of mad turn it did it did it did feel like it came completely out of left field but in a good way because there were there were lots of surprises along the way because up until that point it it could have had that scientific explanation which would have fit and would have been quite a quite a good explanation but as you say yeah. it, the story takes this this absolutely mad turn after i think um i think a very good cliff well a cliffhanger or certainly a massive surprise with uh, yes <laughs> the cybermen turn up the cybermen were voiced properly in the audiobook ah right okay i don't know who voiced them though I have to look that up. In terms, did this did this sound like the Cybermen from Revenge of the Cybermen or the more recent? No, no, the the sounded. You know, what, I'll, I'll have to go back and have another listen. But the sounded like the appropriate period Cyberman. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's good. But that 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 was a massive surprise. It was sort of when I was reading the book, I was just like, ah, no way. Um, so, so, so that was a nice surprise when they turned up because um, didn't didn't expect that. No, and it, and it all kind of made sense with with them um, their inclusion in the story, mm-hmm. but it wasn't revisited in a massive way <laughs> when we had the cyber leader later on. Yeah, that's true. And the way that the cyber leaders uh, depicted is, is quite uh, humorous, but manages to get the the Doctor, Sarah, and Harry out of out of some scrapes uh, in in quite a funny way. But because you know the the, the introduction of the Cybermen has been established at that point, it doesn't it doesn't feel jarring. No, um, it's strange, book two. I know I'm jumping ahead here, but you need you say you don't know what's going on. You need a kind of Climatized to it, but then it, it um, once it all starts to make sense, more or less, mm-hmm. we we can get back into the flow of it. Um, do you prefer the first or the second half of the book? Um, I like it all, but if I had to have a preference, I'd probably say the first. Yeah. Um, just because it feels uh, more coherent, more atmospheric, and gripping, and I I, I like the characters. Um, the second half's good. I mean, it's it's incredibly imaginative, but um, given how the first half is actually quite quite a good, gripping, creepy, atmospheric story, um, it's it, it sort of takes a massive stylistic shift. And all yeah. of this this is supposed to take place in hell, and it is there are dangers along the way. It feels a lot more comedic. Yeah. I would have preferred more of the horror. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And he comes across some uh, interesting characters along the way. I think my favourite was the lizard uh, yes. who who's into torture. But um, 
but because of the type of person that the car- uh, the doctor is, he, he tries to bore bore the doctor to death type thing, and that that was quite humorous in the way that he appears to be quite sleepy and lazy and has this thing about ginger beer. Yeah, and Tom Baker does his best lizard voice. Ah, oh, I wish I'd been able to listen to that. All right, okay. We haven't mentioned that the doctor's on trial. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so the story begins and then it's sort of intercut uh, yeah. throughout with the Doctor being on trial and he's on trial by the Time Lords. And once again, as is the case in the War Games and the trial of the Time Lord, he's on trial for, for interfering. Um, but what's, what I think is quite good about this, because, yeah, okay, it's a, it's a bit of a cheat because we know that the Doctor is going to get out of the situation because this is the fourth incarnation we've got the TV series and the following Doctors and all the rest of it um, and we know that the Doctor can regenerate but you've got this um, oh, what's it called the so- is it the Sword of Neverwhere or something oh, I think, or the Sword of Nowhere or the Sword of Oblivion anyway whatever it is you know you've got this sword that's this this idea that it could completely destroy him yeah um, it's just you know it'll, complete, it'll be complete oblivion but that's sort of interesting, uh, how the Doctor's put on trial and the way that that um, comes across. What, what did you think of those moments? I think it's quite quite interesting looking at um, the Time Lord's perspective on all this and the Doctor's perspective of them. It, uh, it probably helps with the first-person perspective of the story because, um, of course, the Doctor's revisiting these events and explaining it to them. Yeah, and I thought... It seems to be there's this theatrical element to it, which I think is very befitting for the Time Lords, and the, you know um, they're offended by the Doctor and his attitude because it does sort of emphasise. Because I think sometimes it can be forgotten or taken for granted that the Doctor is a rebel, yeah, um, and he has a completely different outlook to the society in which he came from. So, so that's depicted um, very well, and how the Doctor and his outlook is completely at odds with the Time Lords. Yeah, and I thought the st- I thought the, the story overall was quite well structured. And um, the moments when you're in the middle of ac- middle of the action, and then it stops for these trial sequences, it didn't feel irritating. Uh, I thought they were very well placed. They're not there's not too many interruptions, and it, it's handled it's it's handled very well. They're not, and those moments, they're not too long and they're not too short. So going back, I did like the um, the first appearance of the Scarecrows when he's mm-hmm. holding holding the, the ball. <laughs> and then they're in the field, aren't they? And they're surrounded by four of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, because even though this idea came when in advance of it, I think a lot of Doctor Who fans will, will probably have human nature at the, at the forefront because that's a, a Doctor Who story that is well known for... For Scarecrows. For, for Scarecrows, yeah. <laughs> I mean, did, did that ever cross your mind when you were listening to it? it? Constantly, but there's no comparison, is there? No, I don't the, think... No. No, because they're, they're quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's a nice idea, but I mean, I don't know whether you agree, but I think the way that they're, they're utilised in this story and the way that they're depicted, I think they're far more scary here. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. By a mile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, as they after they've been to the church, the Doctor goes to the village. Mm-hmm. And it's quite quiet. He meets, meets Mrs. Tullock. She's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah. She's not a very. She's not very. She's. I want to describe her much more strongly than this, but I shan't for the podcast. But yeah, she's not a very nice person. No. 
Oh, and the scarecrow on the bicycle. Oh, that, that's later on, isn't it? Oh, yes. He, is, that, is that the one that's dressed as a policeman? Yeah, with a lantern for a head or something. Yeah. I was walking to work yesterday at half four in the morning, mm. about five o'clock. It was pitch black, and I could hear this tick, tick, tick of, of a bike just gliding down behind us down the road. Uh, and that occurred to me, that that moment in the story. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I looked around and it was gone. So it was pretty freaky. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> that just reminds me when I was... Um, when this was back in 2005. So at this point I was still in sixth form. And when I was... He- so when I was heading into school, uh, it, it, it was uh, the Monday following the broadcast of Rose... And and this was me. And in fact, later on, because there were, there were other people who'd seen it, who weren't Doctor Who fans. They were just going, "Were you looking at wheelie bins in a completely different way? <laughs> just just clocking wheelie bins everywhere you were going, and just that that moment of just going, is it going to eat me in Belch? <laughs> oh. It's a shame that hasn't stuck, has it? The and fear it... of wheelie bins. <laughs> no. I think Russell T. Davis maybe thought he was onto something there. <laughs> And I could see where it's coming from, but it's sort of... It, they're, they're everywhere. Yeah, they're everywhere, but yeah, that is a... a yeah, I think that's one thing that's probably not... Uh, probably hasn't hasn't stuck. Whereas the no. idea of the Autons in general has. I think had it been handled a, a bit better on screen... <laughs> you've got the bit where Noel Clark is kind of opening the bin and he's stuck to it and it eats him. It's not that sinister or ominous, it's just... It's well, just a bit weird. Well, I think that I think that point of the story was played deliberately silly. I mean, it belches, it which bit, doesn't make yeah, any yeah. sense. Which doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but but it is funny. Um, but yeah, they could have gone down another way, which was a bit more scary. Oh yeah, you could add some old woman taking the rubbish out, and she just gets eaten. Yeah, that's the. And then blood squirts out. I don't know. Uh, that's a bit much. A bit much. <laughs> Yeah. Or wheelie bins crashing through shop windows. <laughs> <laughs> just got this image of wheelie bins just like careering round roads causing traffic accidents and stuff like that now. Attack of the colour wheelie bins. Autonomous wheelie bins. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I found it weird that Sarah left the TARDIS door open. You would double check, wouldn't you? You'd make sure that door was locked. You would, but funny enough, there's mo. I can't think of uh, specific stories, but the the are the ones in the classic series when they they leave the TARDIS and they've left the doors wide open. Just <laughs> going, right. but you bloody close them for goodness' sake! <laughs> really, it's irritating. It's, <laughs> it, it's one of those things that's just really hit and miss. Either they make a point of closing them, or just leave them wide open. Take like if I'm in a really weird area in the middle of the night, if I get back into the car, first thing I do is lock the doors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel much safer. It's just common sense. Yeah. So as um, Sarah's run through the TARDIS from the Scarecrow, mm-hmm. she enters what we discover is the Jigsaw Room, and we see bits and pieces of her life in the tiles. Mm-hmm. We see her as a schoolgirl on a pier laughing with her best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, this happens in whatever happened to Sarah Jane Smith from the Sarah Jane Adventures. 
Oh, I didn't clock that because I, I haven't really seen that many episodes of no. the Sarah Jane Adventures. All right, okay, that's quite good. Basically, this is um, her when she's a young girl, mm-hmm. which which we see in the show. What else does she mention? Oh, she mentions her poor dear parents, mm-hmm. and we'll see them in the Sarah Jane Adventures as well. All right, okay. And they have um, there's a tragic story to them, but I'll not mention that if you haven't seen that. Okay. Um, running from an exploding school, school reunion. Yep. Holding a young boy's hand and running—that must be Luke Smith. There's, isn't there a, a reference to the quarry as well? Which perhaps I th- maybe I didn't make note of that. Uh, I'm sure I can't quite remember, but I think it was a there was a bit of a reference to the hand of fear. But uh, again, because skipping ahead, because I thought that was a that was an interesting idea, and I quite liked that. Um, and it's sort of the, this sort of interesting idea that the TARDIS would would have a room like that. Yeah. But I love the way that the the whole story wraps up. So it's at the very end, and Sarah's talking to the Doctor about it. Cause yeah, it's, you because know, it's, there's a there's a whole there's a whole other mini chapter from Sarah Jane's perspective. Yes, that's right. Yeah, which is quite nice, and I like the, I like how the story ends with that. And so she's asking about the jigsaw room, and they're talking about, um, you know, that idea of if you could see your entire life, would you want to see how it ends and all the rest of it. And then it's just that last line, which was going well. If if you're impressed with the jigsaw room, uh, wait wait till you see the train set. Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was great. I like that. And in that scene, um, the doctor mentions. That he's tried it out a few times, but he never he never looks to the end, or does he? <laughs> no, I, th- I think given I think he was being honest there. I think he probably probably doesn't look at the end. It's been prepared for. That's enough. <laughs> but back with the scene with Sarah Jane in that room, um, there's a good scene with Sarah and the Scarecrow where it becomes aware of who it was. Yeah, and that's really sad and quite poignant. It begins with this sort of this. I think it had been hinted at before, but it's this idea that... Because the, the, the Scarecrows actually want to talk, yeah. but they're unable to. Um, so you've got that, that, that... They've got this sort of sense of what they were able to do when they were human, but they're not able to do that. And memories are lost, but there's that... It, it, it slowly begins to remember who she once was, and memories start to, uh, to come in. And As we see them on the floor tiles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um, and you get a bit of uh, perspective of the scarecrow and what she's wanting to do and what she's trying to convey and memories lost and the life lost and all the rest of it and it's sort of that mixture of horror and sadness. So again, that was that was an yeah uh, that was another standout moment. It was sort of a moment when the, yes, there's peril and Sarah's trying to escape and all the rest of it, but from what's been going on, the story sort of slows down. And you just have this quite poignant moment. So, um, yeah, that was quite the, sad reading that bit. But it was, it, 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 once again, it's um, it's the story being well balanced with with good dramatic ingredients being added. There's a similar thing with the cyber leader. Well, it's not the same. It doesn't have the same dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. But this, the cyber leader or cyber controller is starting to f- remember and feel and regret and this happened in the revived series at some point when the emotional inhibitor was turned off and the Cyberman 
the, the person's personality came out and they were in pain. Was that Age of Steel, the David yes. Tennant story? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, because um, that that's again that that's one moment of, of Doctor Who which really st- stays in my mind because I quite like that story and there's a lot going on. Some uh, some of it doesn't quite work, but on the whole, I like that story. Yeah. But funny, um, <clears throat> that's the the one moment in the story which I always remember a lot more than say because there's a bit um, later on. There's a bit where you know you you. You get the sense of the horror of actually the cyber conversion which has taken place because you see these rotating uh, uh, saws and things like that. Yeah. Um, but funny enough, I never think of that first. It's that scene where um, the emotional inhibitors um, malfunctioned, and yeah, the Cybermen's beginning to remember the life and feeling so cold, and the Doctor just constantly having to apologise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember that scene. And yes, it's, that sort of thing mirrors what's got, what's went on there, yeah. But yeah, the, the cyber conversion was pretty horrific, wasn't it? Mm, mm-hmm. Apart from um, Ianto's girlfriend, she had it easy. <laughs> oh, cyber woman. Jeez. With the cyber high heels. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like they were scooping brains out of people for the typical cyber conversions. But in the heat of the battle, they did quick conversions with bras and heels. <laughs> oh, no. <it's> just... <laughs> I need to rewatch it because I remember the first time I, uh, I watched that and I just went, this is ridiculous because I think the idea of... Uh, I, I can't remember the plot exactly because it's been so long since I watched it. But I remember thinking it's a decent story. But this is just... It's just adolescent. Just the whole design. You've got cyber high heels and a cyber bra and the whole yeah. yeah, the whole design just looks ridiculous. I think you're completely right. I think there's a, a little bit more to take from that story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is a bit overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um It's all a, a, it's all anyone seems to remember. Well I'm not surprised it is a it is a bit of a mess think, the way that the story yeah. is presented. Yeah, so we're going to revisit Torchwood then at some point. <laughs> I think we need to, yeah, because there's a lot of good stuff in in Torchwood, but I think for me that that comes from season two onwards. Season one for me is a bit of a bit of a hodgepodge. There are some cracking good stories in there. Uh, Countryside being one. The f- I think it's the following episode. It's the one to do with the, the fairies. Small worlds, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I remember that being um, quite strong. Especially at the end when Jack decides to give up the child to save the world. Yeah, which I suppose... Just, just as he does in Children of Earth. Yeah, I was just about to mention grandson, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I've got fonder memories of the first series of Torchwood. I see, because I, I didn't start watching Torchwood until well after it had been broadcast, because I think when it first started... It did have quite a poor reputation. Uh, a lot of the critics were really, I think, quite you know, sticking the boot in. I wasn't aware of this. I was just, I was just enjoying it. No, no, I, I, th- I think that's good. It was just because I think I watched the first or the second episode, and I just went, "Oh, nah, I think this is re- just ridiculous. It's just adolescent." Um, I couldn't get into it, and then people were basically saying it's like Scooby Doo for adults. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I, I don't think it was what people were expecting. What is Scooby Doo not for adults? 
I watch it on, on Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think it was what people were expecting. And as I said, I wasn't particularly keen on it. But when I went back to watch it many years later, and I think give it a you know better time of day, I thought it started to pick up towards the end of it. And then by the time you got into the second series, I think I think they had a better idea of what they wanted to be about. Um, yeah. And it was a bit... And it had that... The, the humour worked better, I think, in the second series, and the drama worked a bit better. It felt a bit more grown up. Mm. Um, and, of course, Children on Earth is just phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Wow, yeah, we said the same word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, even though Children of Earth is great, um, I'm a bit sad that we didn't get more full series runs. Because when the, when the show started, I thought it was quite good. I thought we were going get, to get a good few years mm-hmm. of 13 episode runs. By the second series, there's a lot of character drama there backstories um, things seeded there for the future that just doesn't get picked up on yeah um, and so, so when you got the third series which was Children on Earth I felt it was a bit more sort of experimental I think the structure of it was a bit similar to I can't remember if Children on Earth became before or after this but it sort of reminds me of you know Charlie Brooker's Dead set no no uh, um, this was a um, <laughs> A TV series he did, which was broadcast on Channel 4, and it was uh, Zombies, and you followed a group of characters where their whole thing was, they, they were trying to get inside the Big Brother house. The reason being was because of everywhere in the UK that was the safest place to be. Oh, right. Uh, you know, really good fun and quite scary, and um, if you ever get the chance, dig it out and watch it. It's quite good. Okay. Um, and that the the way that that series was sort of structured with the episodes, the the lengths varied. Right. Okay. Uh, so, I think it had six episodes, but I think you know you would have one episode which was like forty five minutes, and you would have one which would maybe be about twenty minutes or something like that. I'm probably exaggerating slightly, but that sort of structure, because it wasn't a full series, although it could have been, it sort of reminded me of how, what they did with Children of Earth, and it was it was a nice experiment with what they did, but. Um, what was the one that came after series four? Miracle Day. Uh, yeah, so Miracle Day. So when they go back to the um, the normal running of a series, it, it sort of it sort of works. But um, I wish they'd done a fifth series. Mm-hmm. I know it's there on audio. Yeah, I think they're on they're on the series six now. Oh, that's quite good. Did they bring any of the American characters back? No. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. It's a shame. I hate things being left open-ended when you had what was the name of the the group that was behind it all oh i can't for that i can't remember but but you, you know when they sat on the bench at, at the end and they're talking about phase two or something yes yeah yeah it, it's really annoying why why even mention that if it's not a guarantee that there's going to be a follow-up <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then the whole thing with um with Captain Jack and that sort of that, that, that Rex, he... Rex is it? Rex yes, Martin. yeah, yeah, that's him. And see, I don't mind that. I know it would, it could have led to something new, mm-hmm. but I'm fine that it happened, and that character's maybe moved on. Oh, were you, were you not keen on him? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I don't mind not having closure on him becoming immortal. Oh, right, okay, no, fair enough. Yeah. 
no, no, I, I get that, but I, I know what you mean about the whole thing of like phase two, and because that's a plot thing. Whereas at least with the character, it's, it's it, you can pick that up if you want, but if you don't, it, it kind of works. Yeah. I think it would have just been quite nice if he came back in some capacity, but okay. I quite liked Miracle Day. I think um, if you pay too much attention to critics and maybe negative fans, mm-hmm. it can be quite contagious and you can make sense of what they're saying. Um, so I kind of avoid critics altogether. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, and I'm sort of the same. I, I tend to read or look at reviews after I've watched it or listened to it if it's an album or whatever Um, because at that point I would have came up with my own views and it's just just to get a flavour of where other people are coming from but I like Miracle Day as well I think the fault of Miracle Day is it's not as good as Children of Earth I think that's the only thing it's got a different tone yeah but in of itself I think it's a good series I I did think it was good yeah um I get the gist that some of the main complaints are that it's too Americanized, which is ridiculous because um, Russell D. Davis and Julie Gardner had the same creative crunch control that they had originally. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like when people say Doctor Who the movie was totally Americanized, and like, well, it was kind of a Canadian movie. <laughs> so, get your facts right. <laughs> You're just nitpicking there. Yeah, but. No, I get completely Canadianized. <laughs> but no, I think it was. I get where you're coming from, but then it was an American production. But at the same time, it had a British lead, um, a British director, and a British writer. Yeah, but it was an American TV production, which obviously did have an impact on it. But yeah. I think it was just a case of because it was American, they just had more money. Mm-hmm. Bloody hell, Doctor Who looks good. Damn them, it should look cheap and awful. (laughs) Bloody Americanising it. Yeah. (laughs) Where they're decent production values. Oh, Series 5 will be better. They'll Welshanise it. Just totally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, in all seriousness, I I was going to say that because I think the reason why that stylistic shift is probably quite jarring is because Torchwood... Uh, was a science fiction series which was set in Wales and had Welsh characters, which is quite unique. And so it had its own thing going. And then so for the fourth series, when they completely changed the setting to America, like a vast majority of other TV shows which are available, and they brought in American characters as a result of that, I think probably people were disappointed because Torchwood originally... um, you know, it was set in Wales and so had Welsh characters and so on. Although, having said that, though, Children of Earth did broaden it a bit more to incorporating London and whatnot. Yeah, I kind of liked... It's all about status, really, because when you look at Torchwood Series 1, mm-hmm. it's like the show had an ego, even though it wasn't as well known. Now you get to Miracle Day and the show's got such a big status, you can be more... You tend to be more critical of it. I don't know. Well, it's like a thing. I think. I think if you're going to probably compare it to something, it'll probably be like um, you know the thing when you've got like a musician or a band, yeah. and you get into them in the very early stages, and then they become popular, and then uh, there's that whole thing of oh, you know, then even though they gained a whole load of fans, they've actually lost some because they've become popular, and therefore they've sold out. Yeah. Maybe it was a maybe it was a similar thing. 
for some people. Y- yes, maybe. I don't know if you watch Sherlock. I've seen a couple of episodes. I couldn't get into it. Um, I really like the first series, which there's only three episodes series. Oh, okay. Um, I enjoyed it, and it was probably a lesser known thing. Um, and the show became immensely popular, and I feel like that was reflected in the show and possibly in the writing. And I feel like by the time you get to the third or fourth series, hmm. it's got this big inflated ego to it. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just completely imagining it. No, I mean, because uh, the episodes that I watched, um, I think it may have been series three. It was the episode in which um, Dr. Watson was uh, was held underneath a bonfire. Oh, yeah, that's the first episode of the third series, yeah. And then um, there's a one where they're trying to find a bomb and it's located in a disused uh, railway station. Yeah, it's on the train, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the way that... Um, I mean, Sherlock Holmes has, uh, has always been a bit of a dick, I suppose, but um, the way that he pretends to Dr. Watson that he can't defuse the bomb and then finds the whole thing absolutely hysterical. I thought, this guy's just an arse. No, sorry, don't like it. Okay. See, that was more to do with their relationship, I guess. Mm. Rather than him just being an arse, but... Yeah. Oh, there's a bit I forgot to mention about Sarah and the TARDIS. Um, when she's on the run from the Scarecrow. Mm-hmm. She comes across a ballroom and an old wedding cake. Did that make any sense to you? Oh, yes, I completely forgot about that. Um... It did at the time, <laughs> but I can't remember. It, it did seem a bit sort of, um, it did seem a bit random. It's just a complete mystery then. Because was there anyone else that was in the ballroom? No. Yeah, I, I've, I've forgotten the reference uh, myself until you mentioned it. I think um, maybe it was just put in because it was um, something that just felt fitting at the time, or maybe it was a reference to the fact that the doctors got married in the past or something. Mm-hmm. And she climbs a bell tower. Mm-hmm. Is it close to bell tower? Well, because uh, back in uh, 2003, um, there was a Doctor Who documentary that the BBC broadcast. And I remember Tom Baker was talking about... Um, it was sort of his view on the TARDIS and how he thought it was this great idea that it was always bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. But it seemed a bit of a shame that... Um, that it wasn't seen as, as as being much larger. So he always had this thing in his uh, in his mind that you know uh, it could be in, you could record inside a, a cathedral and say that's inside the TARDIS. Yeah. Okay. So that 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 felt very much a part of that idea. But yeah, it, it makes sense with what you just said. Probably it is probably the cloister bell tower. I like it though. I like that we get to see some completely random interiors um, I tend to visualise it just being endless corridors like Castrovalva yeah that's true I mean, one of the things I liked about Castrovalva was they did try to make um, Fiona Cumming who directed it she did have this thing of trying to make um, the inside of the TARDIS a bit more interesting so so breaking up the walls a bit or putting in a random silver pillar so it just had some variety and that's, it, it sort of worked Although I really like the Doctor's wife, 
which I think is a really good episode. One of the problems that I have is the the design of the TARDIS that the you know with the TARDIS corridors. Yeah. They're a bit boring, but it, it sort of fits that story. It's fine, but when you get to Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, the Matt Smith episode, the TARDIS is supposed to be this absolutely amazing thing. It, it could be anything and everything. But I thought I thought the interior of the TARDIS that they gave that with all the, the never-ending corridors, which looked exactly the same, was a bit tedious. The corridors they used in the Doctor's Wife, mm-hmm. with the hexagonal shapes on the walls. That corridor was recycled and used in A Good Man Goes to War. Ah, right, okay. Um, that was blatantly obvious to me. I just wondered if it was to you. So, hang on, so which bits? It's actually the scene when Amy and Rory's baby's been taken. Yeah. And the Doctor goes through a corridor, which is actually the recycled TARDIS corridor but yes yeah 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 sorry uh, I remember which bit you mean now yeah that what that was glaringly obvious to me as well it didn't mind because it was uh, you caught up in the drama but it, yeah it was noticeable which was a bit of a shame yeah I thought it's fair enough recycling the set but they could have added a tiny bit of detail you know to maybe not draw your attention towards the fact that it's um, the same set yeah yeah so did Mrs. Tulloch deserve to die? Do you think? Yeah, she did. She's a horrible, awful she did. person. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not that cruel. She wasn't a particularly nice person, you know. And she was trying to stir up trouble and all the rest of it. But I think at the end of it, she, you know, she she had this image of herself being the heart and soul of the village, and she probably thought that she was doing it for the best of intentions. Although, you know, it is clearly seen that she is quite selfish and, you know, always thinking of number one. But no, she she didn't deserve to die. But it but obviously it's it's one of those things where you know she um she had her comeuppance um, because it, it's sort of funny it's um, she's the last villager to survive, but because basically because of her own course of action, all the other all the villagers have turned into scarecrows and then they all get her and turn her into scarecrow. It's a shame because the doctor gave this statement where he said he's gonna find them, warn them and save them mm-hmm. but they all died yeah and Mrs Tulloch she, she turned into a tree didn't she yes she did, yes sorry yes, yeah. she uh, turned into a tree Um, and I wonder if it's relevant but when the doctor Sarah and Harry arrive at the church they're looking at the trees saying that they're how ancient they are and how there's a lot of mystery and history to them or something or other mm-hmm. I can't quote it directly but I felt like there was a connection there yeah yeah there the probably was and I think because um, it sort of it, it passed me by a bit because when it came to that moment uh, when she got uh, turned into a tree it just made me think of the Mark of the Rani yeah. and going this is how you do it although I quite <laughs> I, but I do like Mark of the Rani I do think it's a good story but um the bit when uh, Josh turns into a tree uh, and helps <laughs> and helps Perry, I mm. think it's it's one of those things. It works well on the written page, but I mean, even even in in modern Doctor Who with a much better uh, budget, I think they would struggle. I think they would still struggle to to make that. Maybe we should be grateful that Scratch Man wasn't made. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it would have been a bit bad. Well, with something like that, maybe they would. Uh, maybe they would just rewrite it. But, but there, there is a part. What, 
but in book two, you know, when you've got hordes of um, the Doctor's enemies, that would have been a bit of a um, logistical challenge for them. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, that's the thing. I think the first half of of Scratchman works. If you were to turn that into a live action thing, I think it would work. The second half, uh, and although it's, uh, the first half's written really, uh, really rather well, the second half can only work, I think, as as a book. You've got this uh, this this sense of Dante and uh, Hieronymus Bosch sort of influencing the uh, the image of hell that's there, and that fires off the imagination. Mm-hmm. That can only work, um, I think, as, as something as a written piece and, and the reader letting their imagination run wild. Regardless of what the budget you would have uh, for any live action thing, it would o- it would only disappoint. So yeah, I agree with that. I think the second half of uh, of Scratchman can only work in a novel. Whereas the whereas the first half, yes, it, it works as a novel, but you could see how it could how it could be turned into a live action thing. Yeah. There was a good few things about um, the second half, mm-hmm. and of course we had the three doctors back. Yes, uh, did that come as a surprise? It did. If that was translated into a live-action movie, do you think that they would have had cameos? Well, it's a bit. Um, I mean, may- yeah, maybe. I mean, it's a bit funny how that they appear because they're not really the the original three doctors. They're sort of a distorted version of how the Doctor remembers his former self. Yeah. Or selves, rather. Um, yeah, I, I liked how descriptive they were, like, the first Doctor had, like, a crow's skull. Yes, yeah, yeah, Something, yeah. Um, I visualised the third Doctor as Wurzel Gummidge. Yes, I did as well, uh, because he's described as something of being as a scarecrow, and I think, obviously, that, <laughs> that that's very deliberate. Uh, I think it's, it's two things. The second Doctor calls the third Doctor and the five Doctors, like, are you, following, are you following this? He yeah. calls him Scarecrow at the end, so it could be it could be a reference to that. But obviously, mm-hmm. J- J- John Pertwee was uh, not only was he very well known for playing the Third Doctor, but he got massive popularity for playing Wurzel Gummidge of the Scarecrow. So it's probably more of a reference to that. But yeah, that, that's yeah. the image I had in my mind as well. I used to like Wurzel Gummidge, and I remember reading the books when I was little. Um, but I watched a bit on YouTube recently, <laughs> and it just doesn't live up to it. Oh. I can't not really, read, I can't really remember much of it. Yeah, I remember reading some of the books, but not the not the original ones. I think it was the ones of the television series. Do you remember? Yeah. When, do you remember when when we were in year four? Um, what happened? Next to the fire exit, there was a uh, there was a row of shelves with books on, and I remember just yeah. one day randomly coming across a bunch of Wurzel Gummidge pictures, uh, <laughs> uh, p- picture books. All right, I think I've probably still got the odd book with Pertwee on the cover, and I've probably got an annual somewhere. Actually, I remember. Um, I think this may be when I was in year five. There was a friend of ours, Danielle Brown, because she was part of the the library club or something. She came across the target novelization of Nightmare of Eden. Oh really? Yeah, and then uh, she, she, I didn't ask her to. She nicked it for me. Oh nice. Yeah, she went. Oh, I found this, and I thought you was all right, great. <laughs> Just took it all. Cool. Yeah. You still got it? Oh, sadly not. I don't think I do now. So by the end of the first book, the Cybermen arrive on the beach. Yeah, yeah, which uh, we mentioned earlier, and uh, that was that was a big surprise. Yeah. And it kind of made sense that 
perhaps at that moment we thought they were behind the scarecrows. Was that implied? It was a bit. It sort of it worked because even though I think the the Cybermen was a surprise, you you went, oh right, okay. There were these little hints which maybe sort of hint, uh, which sort of maybe teased it, which was the fact that there was these further mutations that were taking place, and there were bits of metal. Yes, that, that's that, right. That, that started to appear. So then later on, when it turned uh, turned out to be the Cybermen, I mean, oh right, okay, that it makes sense of that bit. So that was that was a good idea. And then of course. Sarah and Harry die. Or they get t- do they get turned into scarecrows before they get taken? I think there's some sort of transformation that that takes place. I think doesn't Harry turn turn into a tree or uh, something erupts from his chest? Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's there's more body horror, and what makes it horrific? It's because it it starts to affect the people that we would least expect it to. And in fact, it's even affected the doctor because uh, there's this bit when. Um, He's been infected, and it's sort of in his shin, and there's things that oh, start to yes. sprout out of it, and mm-hmm. um, so there's that sense of that he's on borrowed time. But the whole thing is quite, you know, quite creepy, and going from the horrific thing because we, you know, we've had Harry uh, have this absolutely horrific transformation, and the idea that it could maybe happen to the Doctor as well. And then, of course, the TARDIS gets taken over, doesn't it? After the Doctor arrives in Scratchman's domain. Yeah, so I mean, so at that point of the story, all the all the, all the stakes are incredibly high, and it feels like the entire situation is is completely useless. That it feels, I mean, this being a Doctor Who story, you you do get a sense of um, you know everything's going to be right at the end, and the Doctor's going to save the day, and everything like that. But we've already had the villagers effectively all be killed. Yeah, and there's no way that's going to be reversed. So the threat is very real, and then the way that because we hinted at this before so the way that um, the story could have had a sort of a, a logical explanation that because this whole thing was this really peculiar virus and you just have to find the cure and everything be fine but then the story takes you know completely out of left field and the doctor is physically dumped in hell and it's all yeah. very peculiar it's scary uh, you don't know what's happening no um and of course, a taxi comes along. And yeah, picks him up. <laughs> yeah, a taxi comes along and picks up. It was just go. Where's the story going? It's just, it's just really odd. And then, as I said before, one of my favourite characters in this section of the book is the is the um, the lizard the, torturer, the lizard dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how you know he's how he's lazy and uh, everything's an effort. And there's this whole thing about ginger pop and all the rest of it, which may, which reminded me of uh, the android invasion. And then it turns out that whole thing's an act. And then the Doctor ends up in this ballroom, um, which is, I think, very nicely depicted. Uh, again, very unusual, because you know, these people seem to be sentient, but are completely ignoring the Doctor. Trying to make him feel um, ignored. Yeah, because this whole thing... Because it's a sort of that... It seems to be sort of like an amalgamation of um, the the Christian version of hell which is all the fire and brimstone stuff and as I said the sort of thing that you see in uh, paintings by Bosch yeah. but then that thing of you know how the how the ancients had this view of hell which would it was personalised so it's, it seems to be this mixture of it's all the vi- fire and brimstone version of hell but Scratch Man the devil um, he he f- he feasts on people's fears and people's fears are unique to them so his whole thing is trying to find out what that is 
and at this point in the story it, it appears that the, the biggest fear that the doctor has is being ignored or whatever one thing i couldn't find out was um was there a tangible link from scratch man to any of the um depictions of the devil on earth or was he just in his own domain the the only thing that i can not that I'm aware of. The only thing that I picked up on was the fact that um, one of the names that we have, you know, because the, the devil has many names and one of them is Lucifer. Yeah, um, and one of them is also Scratch Man. Yes, yeah, yeah. But in terms of how, how he's depicted, it's that whole th- using Lucifer and that image of light. Um, yeah. And it's that sort of strange juxtaposition of he's he's wearing a business suit, uh, but his, his, his whole being is just a, a blaze of light or flame. So I think it was. I think that was more to do with just t- taking um, Lucifer as an inspiration. So perhaps he's rather just some entity from another dimension. I think the hint is that um, the view that we have of the devil is inspired by this being Scratchman, but um, that in terms of the confines of the novel, it's. Um, this religious interpretation has been slapped on him, but actually he he's just this this horrible being from a from a another dimension. And um, there's a bit where the Doctor meets a northern woman woman from his future. At this moment in the story, I made a note of it. Um, who was the northern woman from his future? And I couldn't think of who it could be. Did did you um? Figure I thought it out? I thought it was Jodie Whittaker. Right. I I was trying to think of all the companions. Oh right, okay. Um, yeah, because actually, there's not that many you could say. He hasn't had that many northern companions, has he? Yeah, um, they're all southerners. Yeah, yeah. That needs sorting out. <laughs> uh, although, well, it has in the current series, I suppose. They're all they're all <laughs> slightly north of London. Um, <laughs> no, the, the the way that I read that, it was a sort of it was this idea that this northern woman was a future version of the Doctor. Mm. Um, so I read it that it's it's Jodie Whittaker's doctor. D- did you get that? No, no. I, um, like I say, I, I didn't figure that out at all. Ah, right. No, no. As I say, because I I, I I took that as um, it's Jodie Whittaker's doctor, and I thought that was actually quite a good um, a good way of incorporating her into it, mm-hmm. and just a nice reference. Yeah, totally. When the doctor is back speaking with the Time Lords when he's been interrogated he makes a little reference that time lords don't really sleep has it been implied at any point that he does sleep um except following on from a regeneration uh not that i can think of i mean certainly with tom baker's doctor i don't think there was any reference to it um he uh i mean intelligent wang chayang uh, it's 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 mentioned haven't you slept and he goes sleep is for tortoises probably is references to it i remember um the bbc past doctor adventure um divided loyalties which was written by uh gary russell because that has the fifth doctor in it and i always remember um the doctor's sleeping and he wakes up and gary russell had (laughs) had him that he he was sleeping in pajamas which were uh which just had question marks all over them (laughs) (laughs) i was just gonna raise the point of the doctor's clothes i was gonna say if he doesn't sleep, would that stand to reason why he doesn't change his clothes? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very probably. If it's if it all feels like one long day to him, 
He doesn't need to put his pajamas on, does he? <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. Maybe he can choose to sleep if he wants to. Mm. Just like how he can choose to grow a beard or not. Choose to age or not. Oh, that's true, yeah. I assume Time Lords can just choose to age at whatever rate they want, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, because with... Um, I mean, it was a, it was a good way of dealing with uh, the issue of recording these stories out of order, but it was mentioned with uh, with River Song. How she'll go, how she'll choose to age herself backwards so she looks younger as she gets yeah. older. Yeah. Uh, which I thought which was I thought was quite a good a good way of dealing with the fact that they were recording the stories out of order. Yeah. So the, the the last this last story of her alive is the first story we see her. But yeah, it sort of gives that hint of if if a time lord wishes to to age or get younger, it's it's sort of up to them. Yeah. Um, with regards to River, I think you have to use that method to explain her second incarnation, because when she's a little girl and she regenerates um, at the time of the moon landing, which will be nineteen sixty nine, yeah. Yeah. And when we see Mel's in Let's Kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. She's regenerating, and she says the last time this happened, she was just a little girl. So that means Mel's the character mm-hmm. who Amy and Rory have grew up with from being a little girl. Mm-hmm. Mel's was born well, she came into existence in 1969, yeah, or, or 1970 rather, because there's a, there's a few months gap. Mm-hmm. She must have delayed her age for a bit. Yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of that. Um, I've, yeah, I forgot about that episode. But yeah, it makes yeah that would make sense. So Scratchman gives the Doctor the offer to stay as himself forever, and of course he seems tempted. Yeah, and that I think that's sort of um, I think it's a it's a nice idea to explain within the novel, but then also in terms of um, the show itself, it ties up two things. So. It, it, it um, with David Tennant, uh, I think it's in the end of time, his last story, it sort of hinted at that he is apprehensive about this whole idea of dying because he's gone forever and this new man steps into the fray. Yeah. Um, which is kind of scary. And it, it makes some sort of sense. And um, and that's explained within the confines of this novel here because the, the fourth, the way that it's explained, the fourth Doctor feels like he's the most doctorous doctor there's ever been and so wants to remain as such and David Bradley's doctor said something similar didn't he Mm -hmm. yes yeah the whole yeah it's that whole thing of the reason why he's fearful to regenerate um as said in the end of time no not the end of time twice upon time yeah he'd rather die as as himself yes Yeah, yeah yeah and the doctor has a certain level of optimism um in Scratchman's realm, with David Bradley's Doctor, he's talking about um, the balance of good and evil, which he just doesn't understand at this point. And the Doctor, the fourth Doctor, explains to Sarah and Harry about overcoming Scratchman's um, evil in his realm, and um, believing that the will of good will overcome the will of evil. Just something he referenced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would the pinball table have been a bit naff on screen? Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> what do you think? 
Yeah, I guess so. But I'm visualizing them running down a plywood corridor and the noise of a ball that you don't see because they couldn't make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, as, as, this, this is another moment which I think um, it goes to show that this bit, um, this, this section of the novel, the second part where they're all in hell, it works as a novel, um, which is good because that's what it is. Live action, it, I, I don't anything that you would att- attempt to do, regardless of the budget, it, it, it would just pale in comparison. It was a bit strange. It makes me think that maybe Tom Baker and E. Marta were just out having a few pints, looking for inspiration for their story, and they just see a pinball machine. <laughs> yeah, but I think they were, I think... <laughs> by the sounds of it they were just relishing in in their imagination and and being a bit uh, humorous and witty about it um because i i, I remember uh, watching an interview where uh, elizabeth sladen's talking about it and it was sort of it was the thing between ian Marder and tom baker and it was just sort of their thing but she would sort of now and again look over and see what they had written and they had done this thing where they had written a scene where they're all escaping and they're riding bicycles and basically the doctors picked Sarah up and put her in the basket. <laughs> and Elizabeth uh, Sladen basically had to just to say, I don't think that's particularly practical. There's no way I'd fit. Um, and I think they changed it to um, a motorcycle with a, uh, with a side carriage or something like that. All oh, right. So I think this is, this falls into it well as well as just sort of We'll just let our imaginations run wild and just have some fun with it and be witty and funny and, and so on. Mm-hmm. I like how how um, Harry doesn't seem to get sidelined in this story. You know, he's he becomes part of the narrative near the end. Yeah, um, because that's that's the thing that everyone who was involved in making season twelve in particular, the whole thing that they had Ian Marta, who was just this really really nice chap, a really good actor. But his character was unfortunately sidelined. Not in every story, but th- there are one or two instances where you do feel like they haven't they haven't given him much to do. The Santaran experiment in particular, because for a large part of it, um, he's just seen climbing rocks and not really being a major part of the story. And in fact, um, in the book, in in the acknowledgements, just before we have the uh, the section from Sarah's point of view. It's just this acknowledgement, which is, which just says, "I would like to mention Ian Martyr as a friend and a good egg." Yes. <laughs> um, and so, like what I was say- when I was making that point before, which was, uh, I don't think this is just Tom Baker um, writing a Doctor Who story. I think it's a, it's a bit of a love letter to to that period and that part of his life and the people he knew, and he's not just writing um, Sarah and Harry. Uh, as good characters for the sake of the story it feels a bit more personal than that it feels like he's um, acknowledging the strengths of Elizabeth Slade and Annie and Marta as, 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 as people and so not only drawing on the fictional characters that they played but the but the, the real personalities of the actors um, mm-hmm. as a sort of acknowledgement to them it, it, um, it feels a bit personal from that point of view yeah I think so but nevertheless, the the characters were written spot on. With Harry, you've got his own kind of stubbornness. Sorry, and... I don't know that one. Okay. <laughs> so... What? Where, where the hell's that come from? I don't know. Hold on, she's listening. Stop. Okay, she stopped. Um. 
with Harry, he's always looking for a rational exp- explanation for something, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I always felt like there perhaps wasn't much room for Harry's character to progress much, not as much as Sarah Jane. No, I, I suspect not. I mean, I, I suppose. I mean, I don't think this was deliberate, and I don't think. I think Harry was was created to be his own character, but. I suppose you could say he was maybe an attempt to do the 70s version of Ian Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Who was, he was very much on those those same lines and um, would be able to, you know, physically get stuck into the situation. And he was originally created with the idea that whoever would be cast as a doctor would be an older man. Yeah. But they got Tom Baker, who was in his late 30s at that point so was able to get physically involved and run around and everything like that so that sort of sidelined the character mm-hmm. I think they did um, I think they did quite well um, despite that I, I don't feel that as I say I think the Sontaran experiment is the exception but with certain stories like The Ark in Space and Genesis of the Daleks and Revenge of the Cybermen he's very much a part of the story but um you couldn't really see it uh, going much further than than what they actually did. Yeah. I mean, I can't see him functioning in, say, something like Planet of Evil or Pyramids of Mars. You know, those stories are very much it's the Doctor and Sarah. I suppose it's been quite good as well because I, th- I think um, certainly recently with the the re-release of the season twelve Blu-ray box set, there has been a bit of a re-evaluation of his character because I remember when uh, the Ark in Space first came out on DVD. I remember reading a review. I think it was in SFX magazine, but they were basic. Uh, they were reviewing the Ark in Space and how it was a classic Doctor Who story, and it was very good. Um, and effectively, it was the movie Alien before Alien came out uh, in terms of its story. I know what they said was that if they turned the lights down and got rid of Harry, it would have been perfect. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I thought, oh, that's a, that's a bit of a shame. But I think um, judging from what people are saying now I think one of the good things that the season 12 box set has, has done is people have come back and are re-evaluating that series and people actually have come to like his character more that's good mm-hmm. and, then, so, uh, and then so going back to uh, to this book Scratchman um, it, Tom Baker uh, has, has and, and James Goss has, has, have done a really really good job in really fleshing out his character and, and really uh, utilising him and making a big part of, of the story. Yeah, he's in there. We've got the humour. We've got um, his uh, imaginations being drawn on near the end. Mm-hmm. Which obviously puts everyone in danger. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he is also responsible for um, for flipping the tables around because at that point in the story, it looks like Scratchman's going to win. But because of Harry... And he effectively you know, uh, causes confusion and rebellion because at this point they're all in this uh, this major castle, this massive castle, which is uh, hovering, mm-hmm. and he basically tells everyone who's working, which is making this uh, the, the whole system in balance. Basically, no, everything's fine. Scratchman's told you to leave, and they went, "All oh, right, okay." So they all leave, and that turns the tables around. So the whole castle's crashing. Yeah, which allows the Doctor and Sarah to you know to change the situation. So, so he's even in, not only is a big part of the story, and you know we see what he's doing. He's also a massive part of how the story resolves resolves itself. Yeah. 
and at some point um, the pinball table is referenced as a sort of metaphor for life. <laughs> Do you relate to that? <laughs> no, I mean I, I don't. <laughs> I think again it was. Um, I think it was it was nicely nicely put in the story, and there's a bit of. Um, I suppose you could say maybe there's a bit of, sort of Douglas Adams Adamsy thing or um, Neil Gaiman. Uh, no, hang on. What's Neil the guy? Gaiman. Ni- Neil Gaiman. That's it. Or a bit of a, a Neil Gaiman thing about it, which is fine. It's funny, but uh, no, I've never looked at a, a pinball machine and go, it represents the whole of life. <laughs> it depends how you play. Like if you're really bad at it, <laughs> and you keep losing, and you say, oh, this is just like life, then. <laughs> You've had a bit of a sad life. <laughs> well, when, well, actually, I've just remembered, you used to have a pinball machine, didn't you? Yes, that's right, in my living room, yeah. Yeah, 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 which I always thought was cool. I mean, did you, I mean, we're only kids at the time, so it's a bit of a, but did you ever look at it and go, not only is this a cool thing, but it, but I have the meaning <laughs> of life in my living room? I didn't know it until, until now I didn't know it at the time that <laughs> the answer was there. <laughs> um, do you remember it used to take old 10 pences and 50 pences? The oh, giant yeah. ones. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> I, want, I want another pinball machine. There must um, be some good Doctor Who ones out there. Well, do, um, have you ever watched the documentary More Than 30 Years in the TARDIS? And this, mm-hmm. this was televised, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. You know what, yes, I do remember watching it, yeah. Well, they, they interviewed uh, Sylvester McCoy and he was, uh, wherever they were, they, they sat him in a... Um, he was in front of a, a Doctor Who pinball machine. Mm. And I always thought, oh, that looks so cool. And one day, um, I was in Whitley Bay. Yeah, it was Whitley Bay. And uh, I think it must have been Spanish City or somewhere like that. They, I hinted, they, they had the Doctor Who pinball machine. Oh, cool. It was, it was really cool. It was, it was really well made. It played the Doctor Who theme. Um, the artwork on it was absolutely exciting and spectacular, and um, they even had they even had the the Who-mobile on it, and you, I think the um, the pinball shot through the TARDIS doors or something like that. It was it was really well made. Just oh, this is fantastic! <coughs> so that's that's the best pinball machine I've ever played on. <laughs> um, I just remember something um, a few years ago. A friend of mine who organised a film festival in Whitley Bay. Mm-hmm. and they held that at the Spanish City Dome and I remember he mentioned to me um, they were thinking about showing the Peter Cushion movies there and this was at the um, 50th anniversary mm-hmm. and they were saying Rob do you think um, we could turn the dome into like a Dalek's head <laughs> so I was trying to um, wow that's ambitious think of the, lo- the logistics of could we do it <laughs> wow that would have been <laughs> it would have been cool it would have been fantastic but yeah I don't think yeah. that was practical unless you had like, quite a lot of money to chuck at it I, um, I, lo- I loaned them my Dalek and they took that there so I've got some uh, some photos of the Dalek under the um, just next to the um, big screen oh that's <laughs> as cool the, as, as they showed some movies yeah I remember um, when it, because again for the 50th Tyneside Cinema showed um one week Doctor Who and the Daleks and then this following week uh, weekend um, the Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150 AD so I went and I've got a friend of mine as well who's not into Doctor Who but he wanted to come along he was alright okay great come along so we watched it and I think I think everyone expected it to have a a higher turnout than maybe it did Um, but there was only seven of us I think in total 
and uh, there was one there was one Doctor Who fan because he he wore the uh, Sylvester McCoy's jumper. Right. Okay. And I kind of I kind of felt sorry for him because I could see why he did that, but I think why I felt sorry for him was because he was very he was obviously very self conscious. Because none of us were dressed up, and I think he was expecting more. I think everyone expected like more Doctor Who fans to turn up. Yeah. But, uh, so it, that was a bit of a shame. But we all had tremendous fun. And I remember in this is in the Dalek invasion one. You know when they they're in the warehouse and the Doctor comes across um, the dead Roboman, and yeah. then he picks up the helmet and then he takes off the radio and he goes, "Ooh." very advanced uh, mini- <laughs> miniature antennae that hasn't dated well and uh, <laughs> everyone just cracked up but it, but it was good fun it, it was nice to see those uh, those movies at the cinema yeah well that's cool I would have been there in a heartbeat if any of that was on yeah I think it, I think it was just a last minute thing because um, it wasn't heavily advertised it was just uh, I went on the website um, to see if there was anything worth watching and it just happened Oh, they're showing the movies. Um, and I quickly booked the tickets online because, again, I was thinking, well, they're going to be snapped up. It's the 50th anniversary. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of Doctor Who fans. <laughs> I'll just snap them up and make ones, to, you know, and all the rest of it. But it's just like, oh, there's there's just seven of us. No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but, it, 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 you know, we all had, it, we all had uh, good fun and it was nice yeah. to see them. But, yeah. I remember um, when it was the 50th anniversary of the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night. That was shown at the uh, the Tyneside Cinema because uh, I'm a big Beatles fan, so I went to that, and um, that w- that was sold out. Uh, th- there wasn't a spare seat in the um, uh, in the screening, uh, and everyone really enjoyed that. I was having a good t- time, but uh, it was funny because um, our former head teacher from uh, from St Mary's, Mr O'Grady, was there. Oh right, okay. So so I bumped into him afterwards, and he he recognised me, so we had a bit of a chat, and uh, you know it was quite nice. Uh, he'd actually said, I don't know whether this is true or not. I mean, I don't know why he would lie about it, but I just thought, oh, okay. He had said that he'd actually, it, the reason why the Townside Cinema was showing A Hard Day's Night was because he'd got in contact with the cinema uh, himself and went, look, it's the 50th anniversary, you're showing it. And they went, oh, no, we're not, but we will now. The power that man has. <laughs> oh, he just talks a lot of bullshit. <laughs> Possibly that did strike me. <laughs> it did strike me as a bit, really, because <laughs> it wasn't as if it was the only cinema in the UK because it had just been remastered, <laughs> uh, and there were other cinemas up and down the country that were that were showing it. So it did strike me as a bit odd why the Tyneside Cinema wouldn't wouldn't show it until our former head teacher got in contact. But anyway, so they didn't just play pinball in Scratchman; they played um, chess, pinball didn't chess. They? Yeah, pinball yeah, chess. Okay. Did J.K. Rowling steal her idea from Scratch Man, do you think? <laughs> yes. Very yes. Yeah. Total that, rip-off. Total rip-off. That woman doesn't have any original ideas whatsoever. No. She should be... No, just... No. What is Skittles? Isn't that another name for... Um, for bowling? Right. You know what? I knew this. It's just... Now that you mention it, yes. They're also a brand of sweets. Yeah, I remember playing Skittles now. <laughs> Take a suppressed memory. But according to the Urban Dictionary, <laughs> oh god, <laughs> this is this isn't going to be appropriate. Well, they got they're a fruit-flavored bite-sized candy, also known as the best candy ever, 
And the example is, damn, those Skittles are so good. <laughs> but they're also uh, another name for... Oh. Oh, no, that's not appropriate. No. Uh, I'll skip that one. Uh, and they're also... Uh, <laughs> just, uh, they're also um, uh, a nickname for uh, for certain types of uh, narcotics. Okay. So we learn that the doctor's fear is um, not being the doctor mm-hmm. or doing this alone. Yeah. And when he's speaking to the Time Lords, um, he explains this to them. He also dares the Time Lords to one day take some kind of action um, because they they kind of don't interfere in the affairs of others. Mm-hmm. Um, could this have been the inception of their downfall? Do you think leading to the time war? Yeah, I mean that, that's how I, that's how I read it. Um, so the, so they've gone from one extreme to the other, which is uh, not interfe- not being involved at all to being far too involved. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's how I read it as a sort of um, the doctors perhaps sowing the seeds of. Um, implementing the time war and of course we learn scratch man's fear in the first chapter of the book or the prologue or whatever um, the doctor mentions that when he's describing the time lords he describes them as the most powerful um, race in the universe and of course we learn that the time lords are probably scratch man's biggest fear yes yeah yeah so of course um, fear isn't something exclusive to the subjugated in this story mm-hmm. it's been one of the fundamental driving forces behind the oppressor of the story so fear controls everyone yeah 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 exactly it's um, so regardless of how powerful people are uh, or may appear to be every, everyone has some fear of some sort when we were doing podcasts about um, Jodie Whittaker's first series Mm-hmm. We had arachnids in the UK, and spiders was kind of your fear. And I mentioned um, that I hoped they wouldn't do a story involving moths, but now they have. <laughs> yeah, they have. They clearly listen. <laughs> I think this would have been more scary than the spiders on screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, especially with the the body horror to begin with, where you're seeing people transform into the um, into the scarecrows. Yeah. I mean, because if you have a look at um, the uh, the Doctor Dancers episode, you know, the, uh, you know, where with we're the seeing, gas masks with yeah. the gas masks. I mean, that's that's a scary idea, and I think even to this day, I think that's still uh, that's still creepy. Yeah, that was done so well on screen, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. With uh, Victor Meldrew turning into the gas mask. It's the kind of thing that probably would have sounded okay on script, and then. For a, it was probably quite optimistic for a brand new show, not knowing how it's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Saying, "Okay, let's let's CGI him into a, into a, um, a gas mask." <laughs> yeah, but it worked quite well. Yeah, it, it does work really well. I think um, I think of its place in the story uh, and the person it happens to. I think it's very good writing and is very effective. Um, Richard Wilson's performance. You know, when he starts to stutter and stumble over his words and yeah. then starts to choke on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so it's a mixture of everything. It's it's good writing, good performance, and then utilising um, the physicality and the acting of the actor and then using the CGI and then the makeup afterwards. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's just it's the, just the same as the scarecrows. Yeah. And it's kind of what the fourth doctor suspected, uh, like nanites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly. Yeah. I love how that old woman's leg grew back at the end of um, the Doctor dances. I can't remember. Do you that. remember? <laughs> well, um, when um, Doctor Constantine has turned back, and um, there's an old lady there, and she says, um, "When I came to see you, I only had one leg." <laughs> oh yes, yeah, yeah. It's I grown to... back. <laughs> Fantastic. I need to. Uh, I need to rewatch that. So, should we get to the epilogue? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, is the thirteenth Doctor, and Tom Baker's Doctor accepts who she is straight away, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And of course, he didn't know um, originally when he first met her. No, and uh, I mean, there's no reason why why the Doctor wouldn't accept uh, accept her as the Doctor. Um, but I think it's also bec- I mean, it's funny because when um, I, I don't think it was a serious suggestion. I mean, it may have been, but um, when Tom Baker left the series or announced that he was leaving, he did sort of hint at maybe the next Doctor would be a woman. Sort of hinted mm. at that. But no one really took it seriously. But what's sort of interesting, it's... Um, I mean, I don't know whether it's 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 people being honest or maybe being a bit disingenuous or... I don't know. But I find it a bit, I find it a bit interesting now that we, we do have a... Uh, a woman playing the doctor that you know suddenly you know th- that thing that tom baker said was you know some people are suggesting that that was a serious thing and even and apparently um uh, christopher bidmead who was the script editor for tom baker's final uh, season uh had said that he had suggested it uh had suggested that idea to um to john nathan turner the producer uh, and even said you know someone like helen mirren would be absolutely excellent um, that was uh, I first encountered that in a, a couple of issues back in Doctor Who magazine but it's also on one of the special features of the season 18 box set where he mentions that and I said oh that's interesting i uh, never heard it before but that's interesting and apparently uh, John Nathan Turner's response was uh, to this apparently ludicrous suggestion that the Doctor could be a woman which was like but Chris it's called Doctor Who huh he- it's he, you know, this this idea that a woman can't be a doctor. That, oh my God. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you on the season eighteen uh, box set when he explains this, because it's um, in a special feature called the writers' room, where he's talking to other writers of the series and he tells that story. They have the same reaction as you. They're absolutely horrified, um, and yeah, and rightly so. And that's crazy. Yeah, it unfortunately does have. It does sound that it could possibly be true. Mm. Talking of which, in the in the um, just going off topic a bit again, in the um, in the current issue of uh, the current Doctor Who magazine issue five hundred and thirty-seven, because as you know, there's there's a section where they've got it's called Galaxy Forum where they publish people's um, emails and letters. Yeah. The star letter in the in this edition is from Terence Dix. Okay. And um, he's. He's blasting Christopher Bidmead. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, please. So it goes, um, Last issue, Doctor Who magazine published the second part of an interview with season 18 script editor Christopher H. Bidmead. In response, we received a message from the writer of season 18, State of Decay, 
headed an indignant letter from a dry-eyed Terence Dix. And right, okay. And this is the this is the email that he'd written. In all my years as a scriptwriter, I have never burst into tears, shouted, sworn, and kicked the furniture, but definitely no tears. So I was taken aback by the references to crying in the second part of the Chris Bidmead interview. They just didn't happen. Nor did my making a fuss about rewrites. Every scriptwriter is used to rewrites. They're part of the job. Chris Bidmead made these stories up, but why? There's a story about State of Decay rewrites that Chris Bidmead doesn't tell. Shortly after production began, I asked Barry Letts, the executive producer, how it was going. He laughed. You needn't worry. Chris rewrote a chunk of your um, first script and gave it to Peter Moffat, the director. Peter read it, said it was rubbish, and demanded your original script back. I was both amused and amazed. A writer's dream. Script editors rewrites rejected in favour of original script. Sometime later, I met Peter Moffat at a dinner party. I asked him about the story. Oh, that, he said. Bid me rewrote some of your original script and passed it over to me. It was full of what he called hard science, boring and almost unreadable. Take this nonsense away, I said, and bring back Terence's original script. Two impeccable sources, the executive producer and the director. Sorry to drag this story out, Chris, but you brought it on yourself. <laughs> oh. Well, at least he's vindicated himself now. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, it's, it's getting heated. <laughs> <laughs> I remember there's been heated debates with... Uh, Russell T. Davison and Stephen Moffat there, hasn't there as well? Has there? Um, yeah, I think um, obviously they were just being humorous, but it also felt a bit cold and genuine as well. <laughs> like um, Stephen Moffat was saying, "Oh, thanks for thanks for calling your last story the end of time <laughs> and taking away all the production crew and letting us start completely from scratch." And he said, "I'll never do that to the next showrunner." <laughs> Oh, that's clearly the, the, a joke. There were, but there was a bit back and forward. Um, obviously, it w- they were just they were just trying to be funny, but um, it was all genuine stuff that they were feeling, probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm judging that it's a joke. I think it's quite funny. <laughs> it's quite funny. <laughs> Do you think Russell T. Davis still watches Doctor Who? He claims to watch it. <laughs> he claims. <laughs> All right, okay. He also lies, though. Do you remember when um, David Tennant was regenerating? It was the big cliffhanger. Uh Uh-huh. And obviously he didn't regenerate, yeah? Uh Mm-hmm. Well, I remember the Doctor Who Confidential episode that night when he was regenerating, Uh and Russell D. Davis was implying, like, um, well, that next week I'm a genuine genuine viewer. I do not know what's happening next week. (laughs) He was implying, he was like... um, he was done with the show. Bang <laughs> <laughs> on, you're the writer. You've written the story. It's a bit weird. All right, okay. I remember when that was broadcast because um, that surprise regeneration bit was... Um, well, yeah, it was a surprise. Everyone, so everyone was just like, oh, what's going to happen? Did they manage to keep a regeneration a secret? And with that Doctor Who confidential, because I think Sylvester McCoy was in it, and mm. he was wearing what people thought he was a costume. So then there was oh. this speculation from some people that is he going to be visited by some of this past doctors and Sylvester McCoy is going to be in it. Um, and I remember, uh, I think it was the the Monday after that episode was broadcast, I needed to buy some shoes. So uh, I went, obviously I went to the shoe shop. And the guy, one of the uh, the shop assistants 
Christie loved this episode. He was tremendously excited. And I'm not joking. He was going to every single customer who, who he was serving. He was going, do you watch Doctor Who? Did you see oh the episode? <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic to see. Because he was actually a, a much older guy. I think he must have been in his, uh, his 50s or something. But So it was, it was just really nice to see um, someone with this most unbridled joy and passion for the show. And was generally really excited by it. Um, he must have went absolutely batshit crazy <laughs> the following week. I think he probably what I think he's probably one of those people who who probably ideal for you know those YouTube videos where you see people's reactions to stuff. <laughs> but it was fantastic. So I'm there waiting to be served, and he's asking he's asking all these people right, and I'm going right, okay. I'll Did you for- just say no? No, I don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was waiting for him to ask me. But it was funny because of all the people he didn't ask, <laughs> was, was me. He probably looked at me and went, well, this guy's clearly not a Doctor Who fan. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> and probably at that point, he just... Anyway, so he got my shoes and I thought, right, at this point, I'll just mention it. And I went, oh, I heard you were talking about the Doctor Who episode. And then his eyes lit up. And he goes, do you think it's a regeneration? Do you think it's a regeneration? And I just went... No, I don't think it is because if you saw it, it was only like only a part of him got shot. It wasn't his whole body, so you'll get out of it. And he went, "Oh, yeah, that makes sense." Yeah. <laughs> and then that was it. Oh, sorry. So we should get back to this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And of course, the Thirteenth Doctor is much better at skimming stones than he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she judges him for the um, the events around this story. She says there's been too many deaths. Mm-hmm. Do you think the fourth Doctor um, has got a slightly different set of morals or the way he deals with things? Do you think he accepts death more and he's happy to move on? And do you think the 13th Doctor has more of a zero tolerance kind of um, point of view to that? That's an interesting question. I think um, I think there is a different, uh, maybe a different perspective on things i don't think that the the fourth doctor is any more or any less anti-death than um than the 13th doctor but yeah i think the 13th doctor is a lot more um or rather is um a lot less tolerant of 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 this and i I I think the fourth doctor feels that but um she she criticizes him for playing games afterwards because is he out playing rounders on the beach Mm -hmm. Straight after, and perhaps she would um, been a bit more brooding. She would be in, yeah, or she'd be in a state of reflection, or she'd move on, possibly. Possibly, I mean, I think a good mm. example of this is if you look at um, Pyramids of Mars. Mm. So, with uh, with that story, there's a bit when uh, Sarah is going. Uh, a man has just been murdered because she's absolutely because uh, the doctor's made a flippant joke. Uh, mm-hmm. And Sarah's horrified by this, and but the uh, and but the doctor goes, you know, the, but there's already been f- four people killed, five men if you include Professor Scarman. They will be the first of millions unless Sutek is stopped. So it's not that the sense that the the doctor uh, doesn't feel these deaths, but he's maybe on occasion able to coolly deal with them because there's this sense of we need to we need to focus on the bigger picture. With regards to the the adventures that he has. Um... She assures him that it never really stops, mm-hmm. which is probably a, quite a relief to him because um, his biggest fear, of course, is 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 stopping and not being the doctor. Yes, yeah, yeah. He says, "I told Scratchman our little secret," and he taps his nose. Um, so is this to do with Frank Butcher again? 
the doctor's darkest secret. What that Frank Butcher is really the doctor, <laughs> and that Pat, that Pat Butcher is a, a hitherto unknown companion. No one knows what what we're talking about, do they? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. Clue. It, it did cross my mind. Anyway. Just going, if there was any American viewers who were listening to our podcast about dimensions and time, because we didn't actually explain what EastEnders is. <laughs> I didn't think we needed to. <laughs> no, no, probably not. But anyway. It's best left as a mystery. <laughs> it is, yeah. Best thing of it is the best uh, television series there is, rather than tune in and realise the uh, the miserable reality. Jodie Whittaker's doctor recalls Sarah Jane and she grins. So there's a bit of reflection there on Sarah Jane. Yeah. And they build a fort out of rocks. Oh, that's, yeah, that's quite nice. Yeah. And they say, um, will it stand the test of time? And the doctor says... Um, We'll keep rebuilding it. Mm-hmm. So do you think every every now and again they keep coming back? <laughs> I always took it more of as a... I know that... I know, sorry, it was a question. <laughs> I always just took it... It's, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Perhaps. She tries on his scarf. Mm-hmm. When do you think this is set for her? Do you think it's um, before resolution? Because she has a scarf in that. I think she's probably doing a... Um, probably doing a David Tennant. So this is before she regenerates. Oh, so it's a really old Whitaker. Yeah. Ah, perhaps. But rather than visiting all her companions, she's just reviewing, you know, going back to the old favourites. Favouritism. <laughs> yeah. Do you think she would have um, revisited Colin Baker and um, tried on his coat? Like, oh, I really wanted to try this on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot better than how I remembered. Uh, yeah. And what else would she have tried on if, if it's the other doctors? I think she would have wanted uh, McCoy's umbrella. Maybe his hat as well. Yeah. Colin Baker's coat. Uh, uh, Peter Davison's celery. Patrick Troughton's hat from Power of the Daleks. Oh, yeah. Bill Hartnell's monocle. <laughs> or maybe walking stick, yeah. Yeah. What she would have taken from Pertwee's doctor? Hmm. Frilly shirt or boots? His cape? Yes, his Inverness cape, yeah. Oh, we're just doing classic doctors here. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't. We should broaden it, but I can't be bothered to think for the others. I don't know what you take from the eighth doctor. Brian's boots? <laughs> yeah, Brian's boots. She can keep them. And then the fourth doctor walks off. He goes to play on the beach with his friends forever. Oh, sounds awful. Better be a particularly nice beach. So we agree that the first half of the book was better yeah I think so I mean that isn't to say that I didn't enjoy the second half uh, I still still think the whole book was was was, uh, was good and I did enjoy it and it's imagination and it's imagery and the drama and just the ideas of it but yeah I, I did prefer the first half more just because it it, um, it just I preferred the atmosphere of it and how and how creepy it could be there's a section on the audiobook called PS from the Doctor have you got that in print? Yes, I have, yes. And that's a nice message from Tom Baker. Um, he shows a lot of gratitude for being the Doctor. Yeah. Which I've said before, it comes across being quite sincere. Mm-hmm. And he tells us that we can be the Doctor. Yeah, I thought that was a that, that was a really nice way to to sign the, the story off. And again, it's I think it's it's poignant. And um, and hopefully we're, we're still many years away from this, but... Um, I mean, Tom Baker's quite old now, and I think he's, you know, quite reflective of of his life. And if you watch um, 
the behind the sofa um, sections of the the, uh, the special features on the blue on the Blu-ray box sets that have come out, he does mention a few times of how, um, you know, for him, death's around the corner. So I think he's, um, I mean, not getting to, not, not wishing to get too morbid about it, but I think you know that his more his sense of mortality is uh, something he's becoming more and more aware of. Um, mm. So yeah, this section of the book, P.S. from the Doctor. So it, it does feel, yes, you're right. It does feel very. Um, genuine and how he's talking about his love of of being the doctor and you know how there are aspects of that character which we can all we all have and yeah he is yeah. he has been quite reflective of that time and of course he gives acknowledgments to ian martyr mm-hmm. a good friend uh, a friend and a yeah. good egg and I, I know he said a friend and a, a good friend and an egg <laughs> yeah and we get um a note from sarah jane smith which is a last little glimpse at the story mm-hmm. And it's uh, a first-person segment of the story, obviously from her perspective. Um, and she tours the TARDIS with the Doctor mm-hmm. in the aftermath. Um, she mentions the jigsaw room that she was in, um, and she admits to him that she saw her whole life. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he explains that it's like a Time Lord invention, like a time forecast. Mm-hmm. Oh, and how could I forget the wooden interior is explained oh yes of course yes you're right it is does that contradict anything about that continuity wise um time wise i mean not really i mean i i, I mean i don't think for me personally i don't think it really needed much explanation and no i mean it sort of depends i mean because if you have a look at uh, the virgin new adventures they had this thing where it was a t- called a tertiary um console room and that was basically, I think, if I remember rightly, that was a stone uh, TARDIS console. Uh, oh, this was from um, Nightshade. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's basically yeah, a vast open field with a with a console in it. So we've got primary, secondary, tertiary, and of course, in the Doctor's wife, it's explained that she's archived. Them. Yeah. So the role, the role mm-hmm. there. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is this a is this a story that you would return to? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. In, usually in the case of listening to an audiobook, if I'm going to revisit it, I'd probably go for the physical copy, just for a different experience. But in this instance, I think I will return to the audiobook, just for Tom Baker. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, this is definitely something that I would happily reread again. Um, but, and I, I, did, I did enjoy reading the book. I think if there was going to be any criticism of it... Um, beyond what we've said I mean on the whole we really like it is because this was a, a this was co-written uh, with Tom Baker and James Goss um, there were a couple of moments where I did feel that I was aware of a bit of shift in pro style so I felt that in the first half in particular whenever it was something that the Doctor was doing or what the Doctor had said that that felt very much like a Tom Baker um, uh, Tom Bakerism if I can put it like that and then when they were yeah. moving on to get you know get the plot moving there was a bit of a slight shift in style and it felt like oh, i wonder if that's james goss uh, right. nothing major it didn't um as a, you know it didn't feel like it was a it was a massive uh, leap from from one style to the other it was actually quite smooth it was just a couple of occasions where i felt like i was picking up um very subtle differences i think also there's a certain level of um doctor who law in the story and references to other stories mm-hmm. Which I think perhaps Tom Baker might might not have included himself. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. 
but um, but on the whole, I think you know it was a, it was a very enjoyable read. It, uh, it gripped it gripped me, and I sort of like blitzed through it within a couple of days. So I would I would happily go back and and, and read it again. Um, but yeah, at some point, I would like to to listen to um, Tom Baker tell the story in his own voice. So yeah, actually listen to the audio book. I think mm-hmm. you should. Yeah, it's, it's a well-rounded story. It kind of has a message to it at the end mm. about fear. Yeah. Nothing too hard to interpret, but it does have a purpose, the story. So yeah, a, a nice little um, nice little life lesson, if you like, at the end of it. With, um, I mean, a, certainly a very imaginative story. Uh, very atmospheric, interesting characters all along the way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it was very. You know, it was. It was good. There were there were creepy moments. There were generally funny moments in there. So yeah, I think very. It was very easy to visualize. I thought. Mm-hmm. Yes, same here. Yeah. Do we dare give this a mark out of ten, or is it exempt from that? Um. Well, I've got a rating for it. I don't, I don't know whether you have. I think my only problem is the the shift in tone from the first book to the next. Right, okay, yeah. No, no, I get that. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I mean, if I was to give it a... I mean, I think we'd probably both agree that um, this is certainly something that we would recommend to people because it, it is a good story. You can get a lot of enjoyment out of it and all the rest of it. Yeah. If I was to give it a rating for me, I'd give it 8 out of 10. Yeah, well, I was going to go with 7 or oh, 8. Oh, okay. Well, that's still respectable. Um, it feels like a more legitimate story, the very fact that it's been written by Tom Baker. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend mm-hmm. it. So this is the last episode in the series for the podcast. Yep, that's right. We're just going to be taking a little bit of a break. Um, there's a there's a few there's a few things that I've sort of like got in the way a bit, but we will be coming back. Uh, so do keep an eye out. Uh, the wait shouldn't be too long. When we do come back, we're going to be ha- uh, looking exclusively at the Big Finish audio adventures uh, for the next uh, series of the podcast. <laughs>